Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. My name is Errol Kekic, and I am the Senior Vice President at Church World Service. Welcome, everyone, to the call, The Future of Refugee Resettlement and Complementary Pathways, Strengthening Sustainable and Strategic Humanitarian Solutions for Refugees. Before we move on, I'd like to offer a housekeeping note. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. We will have a Q&A period at the end of the call. Uh, there will be no voice Q&A. Please type any questions into the Q&A or chat box or email those questions to events at migrationpolicy.org. Or if you prefer, you can tweet your questions at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Today, we will be discussing the report that CWS published, The Future of Refugee Resettlement and Complementary Pathways, Strengthening Sustainable and Strategic Humanitarian Solutions for Refugees, uh, which can be found on CWS's website, but it also will be referenced throughout this presentation today. Today, we are joined by Catherine Rayberg, my colleague, who is the Deputy Vice President at Immigration Refugee Programs for Church World Service. Mr. Andre Boss, who is the head of resettlement sector at the European Asylum Support Office, and our host, Susan Fratsky, senior policy analyst at International Programs for Migration Policy Institute. I would uh, like to begin by briefly introducing my own organization, Church World Service. We are a global humanitarian and development agency, and uh, we have uh, been doing resettlement work since 1946. Since that time, CWS successfully resettled and integrated over 1 million refugees and other immigrants into the United States. In the early 70s, together with other agencies, we have also piloted what is now known as the Resettlement Support Center in Southeast Asia to help select and screen refugees for eligibility for resettlement. A lot has changed since that time, and the resettlement program has become much more technically advanced and more complicated because of the global, you will ever more pronounced socioeconomic divisions. Security became a major factor in considering candidates while the number of people on the move rose exponentially. Countries who do resettlement form a relatively small and exclusive club, and each has quotas and preferences, not to mention different expectations of the people they resettle. All these factors challenge the very nature of the humanitarian approach to resettlement. Who gets chosen? It's not necessarily driven by the level of vulnerability in favor of a more pragmatic way of offering protection to those who can be helped in this moment. And as is often the case, the level of vulnerability tends to be directly related to integration outcomes, which impact the political support for the program. Now, one cannot and shouldn't compare miseries and refugees should be assisted, including through resettlement, even if they don't compare equally to another who, can be, who cannot be reached at the moment. As we know, only less than one half or 1% of those in need of resettlement find their way to this convoluted maze. And over the last five years, that number went down even more as a result of diminishing international cooperation and solidarity, coupled with the rise in xenophobia and nativism. It is in this context that we've embarked on this project, wanting to better understand the policy and the practice when it comes to resettlement and its many steps. 
So without further ado, it is my distinct pleasure now to introduce to you my colleague, Catherine Rayberg, who is the Deputy Vice President of Church Full Service focusing on immigration and refugee programs. Catherine was the primary author of this report and I trust you will enjoy her presentation. Catherine, over to you. Great, thank you very much, Errol, and hi to everyone. It's really great to be here and I look forward to this conversation. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen briefly for presentation, here we go. Um, so as Errol mentioned, the purpose of, our, of this part of the presentation is to introduce to you um, the key findings and recommendations of this report by CWS. We hope this will both be interesting and will also provide a frame for the rest of our discussion today. So on your screen, you'll see um, the link to the paper that Errol referenced, um, and we can also share this after, and I believe it was in the link to the invitation for this event. We undertook this study within the context of global, the global discussion on the future of resettlement because we felt it was really important to reestablish a basic understanding of current resettlement practice. We wanted to outline the roles and responsibilities of various actors within the system as it's currently organized and to make recommendations for strengthening resettlement as a humanitarian program, as Errol alluded to. The study looked at three, uh, three areas of resettlement practice and asked how does resettlement happen? What, how is it operated practically? In three key areas, which you see on this slide, first identification, access and submission, second international case processing, and third complementary pathways and their relationship with resettlement. Notably, this study had a global scope, uh, so it was not focused on any one particular resettlement country. Instead, recommendations were intended to be broadly applicable to all resettlement countries, to UNHCR, and to civil society actors. And we're really particularly excited to have Andre here to speak from the European perspective today. So beginning then, I'd like to review some of the key kind of findings and discussions that was, were in the report and recommendations in each of these three areas. So beginning with identification, access, and submission. So in this section, we ask the question, which refugees are considered for resettlement, how, and why? So some quick definitions, identification here, and these are for the purposes of this, this, uh, the paper and this conversation. Identification is the process of determining which categories of refugees are in need of resettlement from among the millions of those around the world, kind of a global level. Access then is defined as the process by which individuals or households are selected at the local level for resettlement consideration from among those identified populations. And third, submission is the process by which selected individuals are submitted to a particular resettlement country through resettlement referrals. UNHCR currently leads these processes and we spent some, some time discussing sort of the, that context and, and what that means for the process. We find that this is a real strength in that globally, UNHCR is able to provide consistency and oversight to resettlement operations. And as Errol referenced, also this increasing professionalization and standardization of processes. And of course, UNHCR has unparalleled access to refugee communities internationally and the mandate for, for identifying durable solutions. At the same time, we note that this, this leadership can be a challenge. The type of coordination and standardization that is, is required is very labor intensive, and UNHCR is often can be stretched in its capacity and ability to juggle its many competing priorities. As well, we note that it's just difficult to calibrate any approach globally or to compare approach, approaches across different regions. 
Um, for example, how do we look at vulnerability or at resettlement needs in Rwanda against in Nepal or in Iraq and just the, the sheer volume of refugees internationally and the differences in the context can make it really difficult to have a truly standardized global approach. These activities in these three areas are identified to prioritize or are intended to prioritize refugees according to particular vulnerabilities. So UNHCR policy outlines the categories in which refugees may be considered, such as legal or physical protection needs, survivors of violence and torture, medical concerns or others. Unfortunately, in practice, as we know, many, many more refugees qualify for these categories than can be resettled. And so therefore, despite having these categories, many of these processes wind up being much more subjective than intended or than policy would suggest. It can be like, as I mentioned, it can be difficult not only to compare different refugee experiences, but these different vulnerabilities, both within and across contexts. And that can make objective decisions to triage needs really challenging. So for a variety of reasons we explored more thoroughly in the paper, it's unfortunately common that refugees are not identified and prioritized according to humanitarian need. So within this context, in this area, we made several recommendations. First, we recommend more responsibility sharing, for example, by creating clear mechanisms for civil society to make referrals or support referral processes and think that this could help ensure the connect, maintaining and strengthening the connection to true humanitarian resettlement needs while also receiving practical, relieving practical pressure that it lies on UNHCR. Second, we recommend that resettlement funding and planning for identification, access, and submission should be divorced from annual resettlement commitments. This is tricky because certainly we don't want to give false hope or by doing an unrealistic number of referrals or you know spend resources that aren't realistic. Um, and however, submission strategies we think and the funding that support these strategies could be designed to address need rather than strictly tied to the resettlement slots. And that this in turn then could incentivize and create a fuller picture for resettlement countries to decide and make decisions about how they how they use and apply the limited spaces that are available. At the same time, we recognize that these re recommendations are only realistic and desirable if current submission criteria could be reevaluated to ensure that they do meet humanitarian needs. So therefore, we also recommend that humanitarian organizations, both with and without experience in resettlement particularly, but with this broader context for humanitarian programs, could initiate a study to evaluate the application of vulnerability criteria across contexts. We think that dedicated effort to thinking about how vulnerability applies in different populations, different host country conditions, different contexts of displacement would be really useful. We've also recommended that resettlement countries, UNHCR and civil society initiate a working group to evaluate the application of needs assessments and vulnerability within and across contexts. And believe that this group could also consider how the referral forms and, and materials that are submitted to resettlement countries and other documentation could better reflect refugee strengths and their own desires for resettlement, their own resettlement and their resettlement experience. And finally, in this section, we recommend thinking about how to share authority within these processes to make them more efficient, more informed by the lived realities of refugee populations and more in line with humanitarian needs. The next section we looked at, as I mentioned, was international processing. 
And international processing is um, to broadly define the, the processes undertaken by resettlement countries to determine which refugees they will accept and resettle. So we can think about these as activities that occur from the time the referral is received from UNHCR by the resettlement country to the time that the refugee departs for that country or is selected. Resettlement countries um, generally make four assessments or verifications within these stages, and you'll see these noted on the slide to keep us um, on the same page. So first, they confirm identity, uh, which would be ensuring the person the person in front of them and submitted is who the person claims to be. Status or ensuring the person is a refugee and is indeed eligible for resettlement according to the particular country's laws and policies. Security, ensuring that the person does not present any security threats to the resettlement country. And suitability or ensuring that the person is appropriate for resettlement. Each country has different expectations within these areas and, and you know, certainly a finding and it's no surprise was that these are very hard to generalize and describe kind of fully for every situation. Suitability is particularly variable. For instance, some countries may choose to only resettle persons of certain family composition, language, educational background, uh, medical condition, etc. The key challenge in international processing that we find is the complexity and the inefficiency of existing approaches, which can frequently leave refugees waiting for long periods of time while their cases are evaluated, and also can make coordination across different resettlement countries challenging. The diversity of resettlement programs contributes to the difficulty of operationalizing countries' resettlement commitments. However, we also think, again, there are some clear areas of opportunity to improve uh, that the analysis points to. So a few recommendations in this section. First, we found that re resettlement actors should renew their focus on efficiency and, and think through how efficient operations and processes could be um, in the interest of everyone involved and could make the processes more humanitarian. We recommend that states should consider making multi-year resettlement commitments. And I think um, this is really a recommendation that crosses all of our all of this report. And perhaps if there's one big takeaway, this may be it practically, is that multi-year resettlement commitments we think would enable the kind of need-based identification and referral practices mentioned. We also think it would enable UNHCR and other partners on the ground to be able to better predict and prepare for supporting international processes. And we think that UNHCR and other referral agency funding could then follow suit and be designed in a multi-year way to account for and support these the agencies' work, uh, providing support to resettlement states during international processing activities. So things like case clarification that UNHCR or other referring agencies provide, logistical support and planning that they provide during selection missions. We think that referring, it's just necessary to note that referring agencies work doesn't stop with the initial submission. And so we recommend that neither should the support that they are given and sort of the way that these programs are structured. We also recommend continued investment in, te in technological tools and improved coordination that helps the efficiency of these processes and specifically recommend that countries could consider developing a platform for global coordination and for information sharing among different resettlement states on the operation of resettlement processes. So, and the operation there is the key word. We know that there is and fully support the continuation of, of this kind of collaboration 
um, and information sharing on policy and on sort of how resettlement is done and, and the approach. We also think this operation, these operational pieces, we could really get into the weeds and make some make some strides towards more efficiency um, if we had and, and were committed to these kinds of conversations together. And finally, we believe that efficiency could be improved by involving refugees themselves more in resettlement processes. We recommend that actors could empower refugees to provide feedback at key processing stages and to avail more information to refugees on resettlement itself and the selection process. So then turning finally to complementary pathways, we asked how do and how should complementary pathways relate to refugee resettlement? We're particularly looking forward to, to Susan's um, contributions shortly here and to the opportunity to discuss uh, MPI's research also on complementary pathways. Um, in this study, we explored the current approach to an operation of these complementary pathways, which are migration pathways through which refugees are able to seek opportunity and protection, which are distinct from resettlement and typically accessible on the basis of other factors, such as other factors than refugee status, such as educational employment opportunities, family reunification, or other humanitarian grounds. Despite increased focus on complementary pathways lately, which I'm sure many of you will be familiar with, um, complementary pathways really aren't new. And we pointed to that in the paper and noted that it could be said that any refugee who's found protection through fixed term or permanent migration has access or could be thought of as having access to complementary pathway. Yet we do lack a, a thorough understanding of this historically and complementary pathways have only recently become a focus of the refugee protection regime, including UNHCR and traditional resettlement actors. We, um, we're really supportive of this increased focus and think there is certainly a lot of untapped potential for complementary pathways to be made more widely understood and more widely available to refugees. At the same time, we share the concern that's also been expressed widely elsewhere that complementary pathways should be additional rather than replace resettlement on humanitarian grounds. And do think that the uncritical adoption of complementary pathways and sort of um, conflation of complementary pathways with resettlement can risk undermining the humanitarian nature of resettlement, particularly to the extent that complementary pathways are designed to meet short-term political objectives. So a few recommendations in this area that kind of stem from, from that analysis. First, we believe that the international community and traditional resettlement partners must better distinguish between the purposes of and operation of resettlement and complementary pathways. We suggest that UNHCR is, should not be the broker or the main broker of complementary pathways, though of course they'd continue to be a vital partner. Rather, we think that an opportunity for civil society and government partnership and, <coughs> excuse me, um, to lead this process. Again, uh, multi-year strategies we find would be really important here. And we think that multi-year commitments could be helpful in meaningful impact in complementary pathways as well, particularly because so many are in their nascent stages and we, there is a need to pilot and, and try different approaches um, and that the ability to commit over time to these strategies would be really useful. UNHCR's three-year strategy on complementary pathways and resettlement is really welcome, and we think that states could also commit to multi-year planning and work toward particular targets beyond annual timeframes. 
And while we believe that it's important for UNHCR, as we've said, and, uh, and international rhetoric and language to remain, to maintain a strict and meaningful separation between these two, resettlement and complementary pathways, we also think that traditional resettlement countries could be encouraged to pilot these programs within their broader humanitarian strategies and even within their resettlement programs. So this is pragmatic. Uh, we point to the need to open, to be open to states building complementary pathways into existing frameworks for the purpose of trying them and piloting them and finding out what works. And think that as long as this type of piloting is accompanied by a continued and also expanding commitment to resettlement, we would encourage those efforts to happen alongside of traditional programs. Importantly, complementary pathways, we think, also provide an opportunity to engage new countries without traditional resettlement programs, and that by maintaining and thinking about complementary pathways as distinct from resettlement, we could better invite these other countries into this conversation systematically as part of the future of complementary pathways. So I'd like to, I'll conclude um, and turn it back over to Errol. I just want to note two additional cross-cutting reflections that kind of came across um, throughout these three categories. And first is refugee participation. So in, throughout the paper, we've noted areas where we feel that refugee participation could be increased and where refugees could be consulted and could, could share and express their voice during and through their processes. We believe that there is a need to better involve refugees in the operation of both resettlement and component pathways. We welcome and know that there has been increased commitment to this from UNHCR and the resettlement system broadly in recent years, and we make some specific recommendations and would be glad to talk more about this during the Q&A if it's of interest. At the same time, we believe we need to think creatively and critically about how to do this. And we're still grappling with some of these questions and would welcome your inputs um, and think this is an area for continued conversation. We're asking questions such as, how can refugees meaningfully participate when resettlement and complementary pathways are so bureaucratic and based on legal and policy frameworks that are difficult to change? How can refugees' views and desires about their own processes be considered during processing? How can input at existing global forums be truly representative? And how can we balance national security considerations with more meaningful participation in these processes? These are still really big questions that we acknowledge don't have great answers yet. Um, we've tried to contribute some through this paper and would again welcome more discussion here. And finally, we throughout this paper, we suggest that there this that increasing the efficiency of the operation of resettlement and complementary pathways and, and sort of bolstering this system allows us to re-examine and consider the strategic use of resettlement. So we wonder with improved operation, could resettlement also be used more strategically, perhaps not only to open individual other durable solutions, but to address whole situations of displacement. Um, and so could we as, as a resettlement community also tie into a broader humanitarian community looking at how do we resolve not only um, small or you know, segmented pieces of protection, but how do we look at a whole situation to, to resolve it and unlock additional solutions? So thanks very much. And with that, I will turn it back over to Errol. 
Many thanks indeed, Catherine, for the presentation, and uh, I look forward to Q&A section afterwards. But it is my distinct pleasure now to introduce Mr. Andre Bas, who is the head of resettlement sector at the European Asylum Support Office. Mr. Bas oversees uh, EASO support for the implementation of the European countries' resettlement efforts in the framework of European resettlement schemes, working in cooperation with European commissions, UNHCR, and other relevant actors. Andre, we look very much to hearing from you. Over to you. Thank you so much, Errol. No, thank you, first of all, for inviting me to the seminar, to the organizers. Uh, as you've been, been telling, working for EASO, head of the resettlement sector, um, I've been actually active in the, in the field of migration management for the last 20 years, I would say, and certainly the last 15 years. Uh, focusing amongst other things around resettlement. And I can tell you that world has changed the last 15 years uh, if we talk about resettlement and certainly also complementary pathways. Also need to say that the report uh, from CWS, very interesting uh, to read and also interesting to see that already, but I'll come back to that. Some of the things I've been reading there recommendation-wise have been picked up at least in an EU perspective from that point of view. That's also what I want to sort of, of mention that I will mainly reflect, of course, uh, based on the questions which have been asked to me in advance from an EU perspective and an EASO perspective. But I think something worth to mention, um, and more than worth, of course, is to stipulate the recent new commitments of the US, uh, of the new administration of the US. Um, of course, very positive news um, because the numbers, if, as we hear, also I think with a signed decree, um, have been sort of being moved uh, from an annual number of 15,000 in the US to 125,000 for resettlement. So this is fantastic news. And, and also, if you think about that number and you add up uh, EU commitments, uh, which are growing, uh, if you think about the commitments being made by Australia, New Zealand, and certainly also Canada, this creates a very interesting picture, maybe as a sort of an additional layer, I would say, challenging-wise, on the report uh, you've, uh, you've been presenting. Let me, let me sort of reflect on that first, because it's quite interesting, because thinking about those numbers, despite of uh, the recommendations you make, you think about those numbers, how to operationalize this, you know, in the sense of identification, access, and submissions. Just as a short reflection, and, and maybe a lot of people do not realize, but think about this only this US number, uh, 125,000 uh, in a fiscal year. How many cases do you need to bring into the pipeline to effectively reach that target? What I always understand from the colleagues, certainly from UNHCR, that at least it's factor four, five, or six. You need to add up to that number as a starting point in caseload to really come up to that number. So it basically means that only for the US process, uh, five, six hundred thousand people, five, five hundred or six hundred thousand people need to be brought into this UNHCR pipeline as the beginning of the process uh, before we actually reach that target of 125,000. And if I think about uh, the, the efforts and the needed resources to take that forward in all parts of the process, pre-arrival, post-arrival, I think it brings in an extra layer, I would say, on elements to discuss. And you highlighted this, of course, as you're mentioning, you know, the openness, maybe from UNHCR side, that they should not be the only ones making referrals. But if you already think about that number, how can we make this happen? I think interesting to add this to the discussion as well, in my opinion. But let's go back to the EU. 
I think also from an EU perspective, it's it's very valid to say that resettlement has become much more political, uh, uh, certainly the last five years, uh, which in a way brings in opportunities, uh, but also some challenges. And, and I think, Catherine, you mentioned already the strategic use of resettlement. Um, if we already think about uh, the, the, I think, pretty well-known EU-Turkey statement uh, set up in 2016, um, is that a strategic use of, of resettlement? Well, we could, we could say so from a wider perspective, but also raises probably a lot of questions at the end of the day. I also, of course, want to emphasize that resettlement uh, at the uh, of course, certainly last year and also this year is heavily impacted, of course, by COVID-19. And we see this uh, probably also this year again. On the other hand, what's quite interesting, and I think this links up in another way to your report, is that at least from an EU perspective, uh, we've seen that things did not end up in a standstill. Uh, not at all. Uh, we've seen actually that um, I think so far that 30% of uh, the 2020, 2020 uh, 2021 pledging in the EU has been achieved in 2020. Um, and remember the pledge of 2020, 2021 uh, was around 30,000 places for, for, for the EU. Uh, so already fulfilling this, I think has been a, a great achievement uh, under the, the present circumstances. And I think also one of the things you were mentioning in the report is uh, to create more modalities. Uh, I think this is also what we've seen in the EU, the openness to consider uh, remote processing modalities or, or to work more on dossier submission. I'll, I'll come back to this a little bit later. And, and uh, what I think also is important to note, at least from an EU perspective, is that uh, discussions uh, have been taking place for a couple of years from a more sustainable point of view, multi-annual commitments. I think we've also seen that the pledging in the EU for the years 2018, 2019, uh, which was a number of 50,000 places, I would say is almost close to, to, to full completion as well. So I think that's also very good news that these approaches, more multi-annual, um, are working in that sense. Um, and and uh, something I really wanted to stipulate. A little bit more of, of EU context, I would say, just to share with the audience um, before I go really more into the more operational and, and the, the, the actual experiences. I think what's, what's important to note down is that in the EU, and I think this is also a sign of commitment uh, and, and strategy in that sense and sustainability. Uh, the Commission recently, or last year in September, launched the, the Pact on Migration and Asylum. Pretty unique was that there was a specific recommendation, specific recommendation on legal pathways, and did include it, the resettlement and complementary pathways in that sense, and really to stimulate member states uh, to work more on resettlement, to do, to do, do I would say, uh, do more and better on quality, on quantity, and also with some incentives and stimuli around this one. There is uh, in the EU, um, uh, it's called the Union Resettlement Framework. It's still under negotiation, but also this piece of hopefully upcoming legislation will be much more helpful in more of a multi-annual planning, strategy, commonalities, if, you, if we think about resettlement and certainly humanitarian admission and complementary pathways added to that one. I think also one of the things you've been mentioning in the, in the report, Catherine, is funding. Um, also here we see, at least in the EU context, 
there was already funding available from previous programs, also in the present program uh, called AMIF, uh, and also in the negotiations towards a new program, we see more opportunities uh, being brought in uh, uh, to stimulate member states uh, and actors within member states, so not only state, but also non-state actors to contribute to this and to really make things happen. Um, I think that's also very positive and very good news at the end of the day, that, that there is an, a holistic approach, I would say, uh, which is making this happening. What's also good to stipulate at the end of the day, uh, the EU developments, of course, are linked up, uh, linked up to the global compact on refugees at the end of the day. And importantly, there's also, of course, the UNHCR three-year strategy, uh, which has a huge ambition uh, in quantity, in quality, both on resettlement, complementary pathways. And where I think also it's so important and also something we are stimulating um, from all angles is this needed cooperation between state and non-state actors. And on top of that, of course, also bringing in, uh, and you are stipulating this more than once in the report, to bring in the experiences of refugees, uh, uh, which is super important as well. But not always something which automatically happens. So there is, I think, a little bit of a bigger push uh, needed for that and, and to show the, the, the importance of this. Let me go back for the audience to the role of EASO, maybe not known to all the, the participants. What is EASO? EASO is the European Asylum Support Office, one of the agencies under the umbrella of the European Commission. Uh, it's established in 2010, so we're sort of, uh, our anniversary of 10 years is this year. Uh, and it has uh, a number of objectives. And, and to, just to, to emphasize a couple of them, uh, one of the objectives is to provide member states with support to those whose asylum and reception systems are under particular pressure. So at the moment, we do have uh, specific programs with Italy, with Greece, with Cyprus, Malta, and Spain, and the frontline states, I would say, in the, in the regular migration flows uh, to Europe. EASO is also one of the objectives uh, as, as acting as a center of expertise on asylum, and we also count resettlement under that umbrella, I would say. EASO also has a, as, a, as an objective to provide practical and technical support to member states, as well as contributing to the development of the common European, uh, common, common European asylum system by sharing knowledge and expertise and to facilitate really practical cooperation between member states. It also includes a mandate on the work around resettlement, uh, such as via the coordination on member states' actions, as already referred to in the beginning, on resettlement. Important, and that's what I really want to, to emphasize as well, is that the work of EASO and also on resettlement and complementary pathways relates to international protection. Uh, so it's based on our given mandate in that sense. What also I think it has been a very good development and also almost like a natural development within the EU developments is that the work of EASO in that sense has been growing in the last couple of years. Um, I will come back to this with a couple of examples how this happened and what it entails. This is a little bit more about background. Uh, let me come back to, to, to a couple of questions the organizers did ask me. Uh, one of the questions they, they asked me is, you know, uh, can you share from a YASO perspective your experience and what's the value of closer international cooperation on resettlement submissions and processing? And why is this important? I think if, if I think about international cooperation, you can sort of in general, you can divide this, at least in my opinion, in several ways of cooperation. I think 
but importantly, you know, it all starts with willingness of involved actors to really share information amongst each other and really share those experiences. This sounds simple, but maybe this was not always the case in the past. And here I see three main elements. It's first a dialogue, you know, which you start up to share information and experiences. And secondly, you know, it's the sharing of those practical experience, these practical uh, experience in, in a real life environment. Uh, for example, you know, being open, and this is really from a state perspective, I should say, uh, for, for observations uh, during a resettlement process. So one state in this sense can see how another state is working at the end of the day. And thirdly, and I think the most challenging one, and also stipulated in the report, really explore the potential to work together uh, in operational processes. Uh, and, you know, there are examples, of course, you can think of, of joint resources or joint infrastructure, and I think also mentioned in the report. What I can say from the EU perspective, that there is an enormous willingness to share and eagerness to learn. Uh, and, and not only from, let's say, the, the new well, I don't like the word emerging states, but but uh, it's become only being used. Uh, uh, but from 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 states who are sort of new in the resettlement uh, field or complementary uh, pathways field, but also from from established states, I think whom find it actually quite important to be able to reflect on the quality of their work. And then, uh, you know, if you receive questions from the newcomers, you know. If you can justify those questions or answer those, that's a good sign. But if it leads to questions, you know, simple things like, why do you do the things you do and you don't have an answer or you need to think at least for 10 seconds, I think that's already a sign for an, for an internal reflection at the end of the day. I think um, also the value of, of closer international cooperation on resettlement submissions and processing is very clear. Um, and this, this led to a concrete example in setting up a specific EU network. It's called the EASO Resettlement and Humanitarian Admission Network. It has, as it's focused on member states and associated states. And this platform is really created to facilitate cooperation. An important characteristic, I would say, of resettlement submissions and processing, as it was also referred um, in, in the report, is the fact that there are different practices used by states. And to be fair, um, there is a reason why. Uh, there's a reason why there is a specific setup by a state or why there is a specific approach. I think from an EU perspective, and probably not, of course, unique from, from an EU perspective, the most important one is this individual sovereignty of states, and certainly in the sense of decision-making, and also those needed elements, how to come up to a decision. EASO, and including myself, we have observed in the last years, I think around the 20 states who were active, and I think they were also mentioned in the report, performing resettlement processes and operations on the ground in third countries uh, with their different approaches. I would say, if I would summarize, in general, there are sort of three or four approaches at the end of the day. Um, and to be honest, I, I could not tell you if, if one is better than the other. Um, because I think that's not a fair question, because I said there are reasons behind why things are organized in the way they're organized. Um, but I think by being aware and understanding those different approaches and the ratio behind it, it's very valuable for individual states as well 
for future considerations in the potential to redesign maybe parts of their resettlement process. And this is also what I see happening uh, with all this sharing of knowledge uh, between member states is that it brings in reflections and it brings in food for thought uh, if they should organize their processes differently, if they're able to based on national legislation, for example. But I think it, it is food for thought and that's important. Another question uh, which was asked by the organizers to me is what has EASO done concretely really to, to foster closer cooperation between member states on processing? What did work, what didn't, well, what hasn't worked in that sense? I already mentioned this specific setup of this network, uh, the European uh, uh, Resettlement and Humanitarian Admission uh, Network. I think, I think the good thing about the network, there are many good things, but certainly a strong point is a strong focus on the operational issues uh, member states are discussing amongst each other and the impact this has on uh, of, uh, the impact of policy uh, and not so much the discussion on policy itself. Because there are so many meetings where, you know, we discuss policy, but sometimes we tend to forget, you know, what is the impact of policy? How do you operationalize things and, and what's working and what's not working? I think that's the unique angle of this network where these member states come together and not only the policymakers, but certainly the ones who are implementing. On average, this network has been organizing in 2020 and also now planned for 2021 uh, around 15 activities, which is actually a lot for a network, uh, to be honest. Um, and, and on the site, and I think this is something I also read in the report, is that a digital platform is being set up where member states easily can publish information, share information. Uh, there are all kinds of interesting query elements over there, but it navigates in a very good way the need for information from member states. If they want to know, like, how is member states X doing on a certain part of the process, they can find this in the digital platform at the end of the day. Uh, if we talk about the planning of missions or processing and where's pressure in certain times of the year or not in certain, let's say, prioritized uh, geographical locations for resettlement, uh, they should be able to find that information at the end of the day. Uh, and of course, they find contact details, et cetera, et cetera. But it is something which I think will be very valuable for the, for the, for the, for the near future in that sense. Examples of other activities uh, being organized by the network. And I think it, it's, it's quite interesting because it's a bit contrary to one of the things uh, uh, you mentioned in the report, Catherine. Uh, we've had a discussion, for example, on, and together with UNHCR, a very open, uh, constructive dialogue on the content of the RFs. And certainly last year, you know, uh, when we all were trying to push forward in a sense, let's avoid that resettlement uh, starts uh, ending up in a complete standstill process. Uh, so we were, were stimulating discussion uh, between member states and the UNHCR on, you know, this is an opportunity to focus a bit more on dossier submissions and those processes. It is an opportunity to find out ways and our different modalities uh, how to use remote processing uh, uh, options, hybrid models. But it all came back, uh, uh, of course, or uh, as an important element to the RF. I think where you make a plea of maybe more, more simplifying the RF, I think based on those modalities, states 
felt that they needed more information because they were lacking the opportunity to speak to individuals face to face. Um, so I think that's all. Also, where, where where do you find the balance in that? And also, recall, I will also recall a little bit back in in history. Not wanted to sound like a dinosaur, not at all. But it was also quite interesting in the past. There were discussions between states uh, and the and UNHCR indeed to simplify the RRF. But I think the main reason to do this, um, or an important one at least, we we've seen in the past, certainly in the years as of 2005 till 2010, we saw that states were doing more extensive interventions when they were working on their submissions. And that brought the question, you know, where do you need to bring in resources? If states are repeating in their processes the same work which has been done by the UNHCR, um, is it worth it of, of doing a double or, or should there be a balance where there's a little bit less information on the RF, in the RF and knowing that a state will sort of try to justify uh, uh, or, or do their checks and balances in their own processing. But I think it remains an interesting discussion, which I think is the balance between using the right resources in relation to quality, uh, but I think very, uh, very good opportunity again, also what I highlighted in the beginning uh, with growing numbers, growing needs. Uh, 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 you emphasize the discussion on the criteria, the vulnerability. How do you bring this all together and making sure uh, uh, that processes are being designed as efficient and effective as possible? Going back to the network, yeah, the network uh, in that sense has a lot of upcoming activities. Uh, um, Pre-departure orientation is one of them, a specific working group on community sponsorship. And um, some of you have might have read in the, in the recommendation of the commission, a specific recommendation about setting up an EU approach on community sponsorship, quite interesting. So this is something the network is taking forward, facilitating in study visits, really to show member states on the ground the actual situation in Turkey, in, in Lebanon, for example, but also discussions on from a, for, from a more pragmatic point of view, how do you deal with security issues? How do you deal with integrity in the process? How do you deal with biometrics, for example? Not only based on a seminar, but really sharing knowledge and expertise amongst practitioners. Of course, we always need to take into account legal angles, and let me be clear. But these are just examples on how this network is trying to facilitate, I would say, and bring states together uh, and, and, see common, and find commonalities. Another thing we've been developing, uh, and MPI has been invo involved in this one as well, is setting up uh, a training, for example, for resettlement. Um, and this is, has been implemented by IASO and is available for member states experts, a training on resettlement to make introductions. What we're trying to do right now is add extra layers to this training by designing operational trainings uh, to prepare staff working on resettlement, certainly from state actors, uh, to introduce them a little bit more and better in this environment. So a new angle, what we're also have been working on together with some partners is um, identifying concrete operational tools, tools which could be used by a sufficient number of member states in the EU, which are helpful for resettlement processing. Sometimes they're, they're sort of very simple and straightforward, 
but the importance is is that it could lead to commonalities and and preventing that states are inventing the wheel twice uh, uh, if there's something good out there uh, and and also to create an efficiency in the process again based on quality and what's needed over there a new element and certainly close to the heart of, of Susan uh, monitoring evaluation uh, this this is something where, of course, uh, thinking has been done, but certainly something from IASO side, we are picking up further uh, to be developed. Not an easy one, uh, I, I would say, very challenging one, but very needed as well as the at the, well at the end of the day. What I really um, wanna wanna highlight, and also coming back in the report, our, our actual experience in the sense of the setup of operational support on the ground. Um, I think you make a big plea of, you know, make sure that we use infrastructure resources the best way we can. Uh, and, and a diversity of actors should be needed. And, and then thinking back again, the numbers I've been mentioning, despite of people in, in the number of people in need, but only the number already which is being brought forward on the agenda as commitments is already like a big challenge uh, in that sense. It's good to, to highlight that EASA started in 2019 uh, a pilot um, and together with an implementing partner, ICMC, uh, with a facility in Istanbul, it's called the Resettlement Support Facility, where we are supporting uh, between seven and 10 EU member states who are using this common structure. It's also structure being used uh, by the US. Uh, so it's very much also I would say inspired by the US in the resettlement uh, support uh, center structure, I would say. And I think the strength of those, those facility is that there is, there is a infrastructure um, and there are resources available and it creates efficiency and effectiveness in those operations at the end of the day. And again, it creates another platform for states to, to learn. Uh, a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, uh, opportunity is always out there. Um, and it also creates uniform, uniformity, uh, not because we need to, but uniformity in the sense of efficiency and quality, I would say at the end of the day. At the same time, we, we are in a process from IASO based on, let's say, well, the success so far of this example in, in Turkey of the resettlement support facility, and we're starting up a feasibility study um, and we're doing some market research to see uh, that uh, a second facility in another geographical area can be set up and all based on indications of EU member states, based on their needs, and based, I would say, on the positive experiences of this RSF setup in, uh, in Turkey. Again, I think you highlighted this in the report as well. I think this is super important to see uh, how we can use those examples and see if replication is there and that it at the end of the day leads to faster and sometimes even, of course, better processes at the end of the day and also making sure that this could also contribute. And I think also one thing you mentioned in the report to avoid refugees to wait for long, long periods before they finally can arrive in a state. I think by having those structures in place and sharing processes, I think this could lead also to shorter timelines at the end of the day, which of course is super important uh, that we all together try to establish it at the end of the day. Of course, there are lessons learned. I think there are always lessons learned. I, I would not say that things did not work um, or are not working. Um, I think 
like the RSF has been successful. I think the network has a very positive vibe and positive feedback and a lot of ground to, 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 to continue working together. I think what is important constantly, if you think about what's working from an EU perspective, uh, don't forget, we have 27 member states. We have, I add four associate states. So we have sort of a group of 31 states at the end of the day at our table. I think for us, it's, it's so important to, to have this dialogue with member states to take constantly their considerations uh, on board and to facilitate uh, where their needs are uh, via a platform, via operational solutions, via training, um, and and by sharing, learning, and developing, uh, you will find ways of cooperation, uh, and and this includes these elements of efficiency and effectiveness. Yes, I think we all together can do better, and that I think that's a healthy ambition. We should have that ambition uh, uh, at the end of the day. Uh, but I think it starts always with the willingness of people to cooperate, to for cooperation and to do better at the end of the day. Uh, and and as I said, the, the 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 experience are positive so far, and we're pretty confident that this will continue. Um, and and if I think a little bit back as well on the last 15 years, I would say, I think we need to be open for for changes or innovations. Um, resettlement and certainly also complementary pathways, this is not a policy field which is static, uh, not at all. It's very organic. Um, and I think that's what we should be aware of. Um, so sharing all these knowledge and expertise and being open for this is super important uh, for any future consideration in whatever designer redesign resettlement processes of states are facing. Uh, yes, it is complicated and it became more complicated to, to be honest, um, if I think a little bit back on my early days in the field of resettlement, certainly with the political dimension now in place. Um, sometimes I, 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 I'm, I'm sort of, I, I wished that we sometimes had the periods of 2010 where a lot of us could do their work sort of in silo, in silence uh, without any political interference. At, at the other end of the day, the political interference uh, um, brought things on the agenda and created a bigger spin-off. And certainly in Europe, it created an engagement from much, many more member states compared to 2010. You know, the, the group was maybe six, seven, eight member states. And we've seen in the last couple of years that at least 20 member states do have an experience with resettlement and complementary pathways and also the enthusiasm to develop further. Um, another question which was... Uh, which was uh, which was sort of asked me. Can you reflect a little bit uh, on you know the, the the general recommendation? And I pick out your four bigger ones. Um, I would say, uh, and you're mentioning uh, resettlement should be better led. I think a, a quite is interesting one. I think globally seen, interesting question. And yes, I think it is true. It should be better led. Uh, if I bring it back to the EU perspective. I think EU has been showing leadership um, and certainly the willingness and, and, and really wanting to be there as a co-leader uh, at stage. I think it's also visible in that sense 
from legislation uh, which has been introduced, uh, as I mentioned, funding opportunities and also a specific recommendation on legal pathways. And, and hopefully uh, we can conclude on short term also on the union resettlement framework, which is a very imp important piece of legislation as well to, to really, you know, uh, have, have more tangible angles to, to do the work better. You mentioned a resettlement should be better organized. I think that that's a very complete, uh, uh, let's say, a very, uh, um, I would say, complicated picture because there are so many actors involved. Uh, so I do agree, you know, it's worth, you know, to, to discuss this and, and to make sure that we're all working together in the best way we can, we can and, and indeed to create efficiency. The third point you're mentioning is, is the funding. I think I already made my point over there, certainly from an EU perspective. And again, uh, there, there will be people who say more needs to be done also financially. I think that's, that's part of a, of a debate, but we are, I think, in a very positive development where those funding opportunities are being opened more and more and more. Uh, Andre, maybe uh, I can just interject for a second. Yep. We have a, a list of, a very long list of questions for you. All right. I just want to make sure we, we get to them because I know that you will have to leave uh, relatively. I'm, I'm only one point and then, then yeah, I'll finish up. Uh, you mentioned that resettlement should be better operated. I think I mentioned examples um, on, on that sense, on cooperation, uh, cooperation in the sense of the res uh, resettlement support facility. So, uh, and on the other hand, maybe one final remark. Um, I think UNHCR has been doing a great job, you know, um, more than great, also in the integrity of the process, uh, uh, the trust uh, states do have in UNHCR. Um, I think uh, one of your recommendations, of course, is to being open for referrals from, uh, from other actors as well. I think it's an interesting discussion, but also do take into account, I would say, the, the huge importance of the integrity of such a process. And I think UNHCR has been showing, you know, in a very good way how this how this has been done how they're doing this so so i think this should be if you want to have that discussion the integrity of the process is super important to touch on that and i will close down by now and sorry maybe taking a bit of time but but uh, wanted to share this with you thank you many thanks indeed andre you've given us a lot of food for thought and we look forward to the discussion now without further ado i'd like to turn it over to susan our host uh, who is a senior policy analyst with mpi's international programs susan over to you thanks so much errol and i'll uh, keep it brief because i think we've already had a lot of really good food for thought from catherine uh, and the report and also from andre and i know there's a lot of questions um, but i just wanted to offer a couple of reflections um, andre had uh, talked a, a lot about um, sort of reacting to some of the points in the report on resettlement and i just wanted to offer a couple of reflections specifically on complementary pathways based on the work that um, mpi has been doing um, since i think 2014 or so was when we we first started looking into this topic and, and also just to, to respond to the, the recommendations. Um, just very briefly, I think the report, um, you know, makes some interesting points about uh, sort of why it's why now and why to engage in, in complementary pathways. And um, I think based on the, the work that we've done and, and what we've seen, um, there's a few different reasons why complementary pathways may be um, you know, needed within the, the current resettlement um, and durable solution space. We have three traditional durable solutions, um, one of which, of course, is 
resettlement to a third country alongside integration in the country where someone first sought refuge or returned to the country of origin. Um, I think one of the, the main reasons um, that we've seen in our work uh, to, to look at complementary pathways is in looking at these solutions um, it's primarily international agencies and third countries who are really sort of in, in charge of deciding refugees' fate within these solutions. And as Catherine said, and as Andre said, there's not a lot of sort of agency or opportunities for refugees to um, you know, to, to sort of uh, take matters into their own hands, aside from what um, you could think of as the sort of fourth uh, silent durable solution, which is moving on yourself to outside the, the country of first asylum to, to seek asylum elsewhere. Um, which is something that's fraught with a lot of dangers and, um, you know, offers no real assurance of um, safety or protection when you arrive. Um, Complementary pathways on uh, sort of by contrast, I think, um, offer uh, some level of agency or choice to refugees by virtue of having a lot of different um, avenues and types of channels that can be used in allowing refugees to put the put themselves forward themselves for those opportunities. And I think um, this is something that you that you hear uh, in the comments of people who have already had the opportunity to travel either through a family reunification pathway or work visa or study scholarship that one of the, the most in, um, uh, important things about that experience has been the opportunity to um, you know, travel as someone uh, and see themselves and be seen uh, as someone who is a student or a programmer or who has something to contribute to the to the society that they're they're making their new home, um, and that's also something that we've seen that sort of sense of, of agency and and dignity is something we've seen in our, our work at MPI and other areas around, for example, um, pre-departure orientation. Um, it's something that's important also for mental health and and also you know, for for integration in the longer term, having that sort of um, you know sense of, of ability to determine your own future. So I would just say, as we think about complementary pathways, it's important to, I think, keep that aspect in mind, of course, alongside the other opportunities um, in the scope of complementary pathways to add more places, protection places to the, the global um, scope of, of solutions available. And also as um, both Andre and Catherine mentioned, the possibility to bring in additional actors, um, whether they're sort of non-state actors or sub-national actors, municipalities or regional governments who are able to offer complementary um, pathways places. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to bring new actors in, but I think the one of the most important pieces to remember is this um, the, the sort of possibility for complementary pathways, depending on how they operate to provide additional ability for refugees to determine their own future. Um, so if we sort of accept that um, there is uh, value in sort of expanding the way we think of the, the available solutions, um, what do we do and sort of how do we take complementary pathways forward? I think the the CWS report and Catherine's comments uh, made a lot of um, uh, really good recommendations. And I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things um, and, and add them and flag them for the discussion. Um, one is I think there's a, a value in remaining flexible in how we think about complementary pathways. There's been a lot of questions and sort of push um, to have sort of a more um, clear definition of complementary pathways pathways, more clear sort of um, standards for how complementary pathways are practiced. And as Catherine mentioned, complementary pathways themselves are something that's been around for quite a long 
time. Um, there's been humanitarian admissions programs um, for decades. Germany, for example, had one for Iraqis in the late 2000s, and they take on a lot of different forms, whether it's a, a strictly humanitarian admission uh, program, you know, just sort of strictly defined family reunification program, a work channel, a study channel um, that are very driven by the, the context and the interests of the, the actors who are engaged in them and, and the legal frameworks that they're operating in. Um, and I think there's a lot of nervousness around sort of stepping back and allowing programs to um, to sort of differ in, in the way they're designed and built up. Um, but there's also a risk that by you trying to, to, to invest so heavily in, uh, in setting clear and sort of strict definitions around complementary pathways, um, that uh, one of, of two things happens. Um, you can either sort of end up pulling complementary pathways too closely to resettlement, which is one of the points that the CWS report makes. And in that way, I think also um, engaging in some of the, the questions around political will um, that we've really sort of uh, come up against with resettlement. Resettlement is very dependent on the political will of national actors to offer additional spaces. And, and one of the advantages of complementary pathways is that by bringing in new actors, you, you sort of allow for uh, additional capacities to be brought in and you aren't quite as dependent on that sort of national um, you know, pledging of, of new places. And if we draw complementary pathways too closely into that conversation, I think there's a, a limit, um, a risk that you limit what's what's possible. Um, and also sort of limit the creativity and, and flexibility of programs to really in, engage in um, the interests of, of new actors and also um, to engage the, the capacities of and needs of refugees. Um, a second uh, point I would just make is I think it as complementary pathways grow, it'll be important uh, to look at synergies with immigration policy. One of the advantages of complementary pathways is that they have the potential to tap not just into wider immigration policy infrastructure, so visas that are available for, um, for students or for work or for family reunification, but also to the policy processes around these visas. Um, many of the challenges that need to be addressed for refugees to benefit from things like student visas or work visas are also challenges that um, uh, immigrants who aren't refugees run up against. And we've seen um, some of the, the countries that have been most successful in doing things like opening education pathways through student visa frameworks are the same countries who have relatively open um, student visa pathways themselves and have done a lot to enable uh, students traveling um, to study in those countries to transition easily to work or to bring their family and stay long term in the country. And there's opportunities, I think, um, within the conversation around complementary pathways to look at how to tap into the broader discussions around building competitive immigration systems and see how changes in those systems can also benefit refugees as well as, as um, immigrants more broadly. Um, and finally, I would just uh, sort of echo a, a point that's um, also in the, the report, which is the need to sort of think creatively around the geographies of complementary pathways. Um, in having so much of the, the conversation around complementary pathways happening among traditional resettlement countries, there's a risk that we think of complementary pathways only as sort of a new type of resettlement that um, is another channel for people to travel to traditional resettlement countries. But again, um, you're looking at complementary pathways as a way to tap into wider mobility systems. Most mobility actually happens at a regional level and within regions. And I think um, we need to sort of, again, think a bit flexibly and look at where there are mobility opportunities that we might be over overlooking 
that can be taken advantage of within the scope of complementary pathways to Bennett refugees also at, at a more local level. Uh, so I'll stop there and uh, leave some time to, to answer the questions that I know are waiting. Thank you so much, Susan. And we indeed have a list of, and a long list of that of questions uh, uh, ranging from complementary pathways conversations to uh, private co-sponsorship to complications with resettlement. So maybe the first question would be directed at Catherine. Uh, Catherine, what are the examples of complementary pathways and uh, how might we in the U.S. encourage the utilization of these pathways? And uh, might we be able to receive help from other countries like Canada who have uh, had a long history of uh, dealing with uh, complementary educational pathways? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, um, I think one of the benefits of this, these kinds of conversations and the research of MPI as well in this conversation is the ability to kind of specify and, and break down the, these definitions. Complementary pathways can sometimes be referred to as one kind of clump of, of a thing where actually there are there's a real multitude of, of the options there. So real briefly, types of complementary pathways, humanitarian pathways, so visas that are made available for people, either refugees or not, but based on humanitarian needs, um, educational pathways, employment-based pathways, family reunification um, can be seen as complementary pathway. And so speaking specifically to this question then about the US and learning from other countries, Yes, I think that information sharing across countries is really vital and can be really helpful in pushing forward sort of how do we operationalize the practice of each of these types. I think family unification is one example where the U.S. has a long history of, of operating a complementary pathway, so to speak, if we look at it that way, within its refugee admissions um, process. So people able to apply for family members and, and you could see that as being complementary to a traditional resettlement program based only on, on needs identified overseas initially. Um, and so I think, yes, Canada's example of both sponsorship and also higher education pathways offer an example for the US and other countries to consider. Um, and I think we could learn from, and you know, other all countries could learn from kind of this question of how educational institutions can be brought into the conversation about, about opening space. Um, and I think it speaks to this question of additionality as well, where, where we have to hold intention, the, the need, as I mentioned, to maintain resettlement as a humanitarian program, while also creating space for, for traditional resettlement countries to consider and pilot different types of admissions pathways. Um, and so that you know, without minimizing, I think the really important point that Susan's made and that we alluded to of, of looking at complementary pathways, not only through the traditional lenses of the, of the classic resettlement states, um, where can those traditional resettlement states think about complementary pathways? That's, you know, I think a question we should continue to explore. Thanks. Thanks very much, Catherine. Um, while we're still on the subject of uh, complementary pathways, uh, we have a list of questions that deal with vulnerability and uh, additionality at the same time. So, Andre, can you maybe speak to the contrast between the vulnerability focus on resettlement and the more migration slash humanitarian focus of complementary pathways? Yeah. Well, um Yes, yes, I think there is a difference and may, maybe not. I think it's all where, where the starting point is, you know. Um, the criteria of vulnerability, um, 
I think in resettlement, it's 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 more obvious over there. And and yes, we would we would see that specifically that target group um, could be flagged under under those criteria. Um, complementary pathways, indeed, is is something where you know you look indeed for those labor uh, uh, these links to the labor market more deliberately, or more to educational pathways, uh, or family unification links. Uh, at the end of the day, I think sometimes the difference is emphasized too much. I see, to be honest, also the same elements on both, both resettlement and on complementary pathways at the end of the day. Um, and I think also, so I think it's also quite, complementary pathways in that sense is a very wide area in that sense. So I think we need to be very careful on the subcategories under complementary pathways in that sense, in my opinion, to really give a, a straightforward answer on this. Thanks very much, um, Andre. That, that, is, um, uh, that, is, that is a good starting point. Um, uh, maybe Susan, I can direct this one to you. Um, obviously the concerns or some of the concerns about complementary pathways are sort of the, uh, about the challenge to resettlement um, and uh, do you think that the shifting away from an all vulnerabilities focus would be another way to deal with complementary pathways in general? Uh, it's a, an interesting question. And that's, I mean, I think one of the, the main reasons why there's been sort of a focus on really presenting clear definitions around complementary pathways because of concerns about the relationship between complementary pathways and resettlement. Um, I think with regard to the, the question and sort of the possibility of changing you know, how we think about resettlement, I, I think um, I don't necessarily see that based on you know, the work we've done as being fully necessary. I think um, resettlement has its role to play. And we've already talked a bit about the, the use, for example, of the strategic use of resettlement and sort of how that may or, or may not have the potential to build protection capacity in first asylum countries. I think resettlement um, as a humanitarian and burden sharing tool has, um, you know, has an, an important uh, place in that space and in building up um, protection capacity in first asylum countries as well and sort of demonstrating solidarity. Um, but I, I think to the extent that we're talking about providing protection to additional groups and sort of widening the scope of who might be able to receive protection, complementary pathways has a clear role to play there. So I don't I don't see that there would be a benefit in terms of widening the scope of, of resettlement necessarily when we already have a tool that could play that role. Um, and it any you know changes there would sort of come at the the risk of, of changing the role of resettlement itself. Many thanks, Susan. Uh, shifting gears somewhat, uh, Andre, a question for you uh, based on your presentation. If four times as many people are needed in the pipeline to fill in the available spot or spots, rather, does this imply that the criteria is too strict in your opinion? And if not, how do you interpret that number? No, it's it's a sort of question in the, in the chat book. No, it's a very good question. No. I don't think necessarily that the criteria are wrong. I think it's also a natural development where uh, people are firstly, you know, uh, brought into this bigger pipeline and then they're being confronted with questions like simply, uh, 
do you want to be resettled at the end of the day? Uh, uh, because it, it is an implication. Don't forget, and I've been in the field for a long, long time, and you'd be surprised that there are people who are considering if they realize that they won't be able to see their families for the rest of their life, or, or let's say that, that that is a bit of of what could happen, that they are considering not to opt in, but to opt out. Uh, there, there are logical processes in the par, uh, in parts in the process of, U, of UNHCR where, you know, if a family is not complete yet, for example, um, then maybe this is not the moment to forward the case uh, for resettlement. Uh, I think there, and I think this is a, a specific UNHCR uh, uh, process, and they're much better uh, in a position to answer this. So, but I don't think the criteria are wrong in that sense. I think it's, it, it is sort of factual how it works. Uh, there's uh, every case being brought forward as a first moment in time is not leading automatically to effectively to resettlement at the end of the day. Many thanks. Uh, Catherine, um, a question for you uh, that has to do with refugee participation in the program. Uh, could you maybe give us a three concrete examples of how refugees could be involved, maybe even from the very beginning of the process? Sure. Thanks, Errol. Um, and this points, I think, alludes a little bit to a point Andre made a minute ago. Sure. I think um, a few come to mind, but they're, like I mentioned, I think there's a lot of room for continued discussion here. First would be thinking about how, what information refugees are provided. And so when I think about participation, I think both of receiving feedback, which is really important, but also of providing feedback, of providing information. And so perhaps the type of orientation that is given by UNHCR and others early on in the process about what resettlement means, what it would mean if the person is referred, again, to provide, you know, this continuum of content all the way through, and that that would start not only um, when the resettlement submission is made, but also earlier in that process. And certainly that happens to some extent, but, but standardizing and increasing that information and, and talking with refugees who have been resettled or at different places about what they wish they would have known earlier and sharing that information more thoroughly. Um, and then second, throughout the process of the international processes by states, um, certainly different resettlement countries have processes for these as well, but thinking together about what, what, points in the process could refugees provide information on the type of employment that they're looking for, or their hopes for their resettlement experience and outcome, um, and building that in not only in placement decisions, but also throughout the process of a continuum of information provided to people who will be serving that refugee upon resettlement. And again, there are issues there around data pro like protection and wanting to make sure that people's concerns are kept confidential. And I think that'd be there, again, there's this need to really flesh this out a bit further, but that's a second. And then third, providing uh, mechanisms for overseas processing both entities, both UNHCR and, and resettlement states infrastructure for processing to receive feedback from refugees once they've been resettled. And so how, what was the experience like in terms of the process itself? You know, it's hard to ask sometimes for satisfaction information midway through. Well, are you satisfied with your process? Well, there's no outcome to it yet. So how do I, how do we ask questions that solicit information and feedback, not only about the outcome, but also on the qualitative experience of the processes themselves? And perhaps that's easier to gather post-resettlement when someone's looking back on that process and can provide really detailed information. So I think there's, there's a lot there and, and certainly more than those three, but those are some three that come to mind first. Many thanks. And uh, I will offer an opportunity for one more question. And I know that we have to wrap up quickly. We apologize to um, all, of, 
all of you who have asked questions but haven't gotten answers to, and we'll try to get to those later. But Andre, uh, to your earlier point about strategic use of resettlement, um, you know, the conversation has been around for, for, for a really long time, uh, but we don't still really can define what it actually is. And the question is, um, isn't strategic use of resettlement one that focuses primarily on additionality, especially with asylum in, in big, rich states um, at a time when there is a danger from various states to present resettlement as an alternative to asylum? Thank you. No, I, I think that's an interesting starting point, uh, the additionality uh, on that one, because there, there is indeed, if you step a bit in the helicopter and you think about managed migration and you do the strategic flavor on top of that one, then indeed the additionality could be uh, could could disappear. So I think that that's an important one. But I think we've we've seen examples. I, I recall it was also mentioned in the report. You know, the resettlement situation in the sense in uh, with the Bhutanese. Uh, I think that that is an interesting example um, where you know it's 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 trying to find solutions for a big group and uh, U.S. of course t- took the, the biggest burden on this. I would say, <clears throat> but for me this is an interesting example. But I agree, you know, we should be very careful that we may, that we're not losing the additionality in that sense. I think the same goes for the whole discussion being mentioned before on resettlement versus complementary pathways, uh, uh, the additionality of it, and it's not one or the other in that sense. Thanks very much. Um, I understand that uh, our time is up. And uh, with this, I would like to uh, thank all the panelists. Thank you, IOM, or rather MPI for hosting us. Uh, And I certainly uh, look forward to uh, the conversation in the future. Uh, My understanding is that uh, we would have an opportunity to answer some of these questions later. And the recording of this presentation will be available on MPI's uh, website. And I invite our MPI hosts to correct any wrongs that I have just stated. Thank you. Uh, just to, to jump in to say thank you so much, um, Errol. It was a, a pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, hold this conversation together with CWS. And um, as Errol mentioned, we'll look forward to sharing the um, recording from the presentation on the website later today.